So we are starting something new tonight, and we are going to be live streaming our messages each week on Wednesday and on Sunday, and tonight's our first uh, kind of experiment down that road, and so uh, we will, if we have some folks joining us online, we want to welcome them, but from our perspective here, it's the same as usual. We'll have just a Q&A and good, good discussion, good kind of walk through the material, um, and it'll still be posted online for those that aren't here and want to watch it later at their leisure. They can get to it through the church website or through the Not By Works website. But uh, we're continuing this look at what the gospel is not. And this is our fourth uh, episode, if you will, of that topic. And we're actually just now tonight going to get into some of the false gospel uh, iterations. And so um, we're going to kind of flip over here to the... Uh, presentation and let's kind of dive into 10 false understandings of the gospel and again we don't have any agenda here we want to feel free to raise your hand ask a question uh, chase a few rabbits as we kind of work through this and my guess is of having taught on the gospel for many many years in a variety of contexts some of these may really make you think and so I, I hope that's the case and I and if if they do feel free to dialogue let's kind of hash through it and work through it a little bit and make sure that you understand kind of where we're coming from on on some of these things. So the first one that I want to talk a lot about is the gospel is not a commitment. The gospel is not a commitment. Uh, unfortunately, in our Western American uh, culture, we have kind of gotten to the point where sometimes we'll, we'll talk about the gospel in terms of committing your life to Christ or committing yourself to Christ. And in fact, in some uh, evangelical cultures where they give altar calls and public invitations, they will actually even have people sign what's called a commitment card. And uh, that's just become a cultural thing. In the grand scheme of 2,000 years of church history, it's actually fairly novel, but the underlying premise behind it is is not novel. This has been something the devil has used to confuse people about the gospel uh, from the beginning for all 2,000 years. What do we mean? What, yeah. I am wondering, do you mean by the grand scheme, Satan's grand scheme against us or something? Uh, I don't remember the content. What did I say? I forgot. The grand scheme of 2,000 years. Yeah, so what I'm saying is that all, you know, the devil's goal, the question is, in case it didn't pick up on the uh, recording, is what did I mean by in the grand scheme of 2,000 years of church history? And thank you for asking that, because sometimes I just, my brain gets going and I'm, uh, I'm not sure what I say. So thank you for allowing me to clarify. So no, what we're saying is that the devil, according to Scripture, the devil's goal is to blind men's hearts to the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And so he's been doing that right out of the chute. In fact, the earliest book in the New Testament which is the book of Galatians, one of the earliest. Matthew and James were written right about the same time, but was written to address a false gospel. People that were suggesting you have to do good works in some shape, way, shape, or form in addition to believing in Jesus Christ. And so for 2,000 years, in the grand scheme of things, Satan has been trying to uh, confuse and infiltrate presentations of the gospel and, and add this component of works, which is really... Just another way to say commitment. Uh, and, and several of these that we're going to look at in this top ten list relate to 
works-based mentalities. And so, um, so that's all I meant was that the terminology of committing your life to Christ uh, is fairly new in the grand scheme of 2,000 years. Maybe it's been around a couple hundred years. Uh, but the underlying error is something that is by no means new. So, um, again, it's not about us committing ourselves to Christ. It's not about me reaching some level of commitment. When we use the term commitment in everyday language, it's, it kind of has the connotation of how committed are you. And if you fail to perform up to a certain level, then it said, well, your commitment just wasn't there. You weren't committed enough. And when we use that term to describe the free gift of salvation, we are completely destroying grace and making our eternal destiny contingent upon something that we do some type of commitment that we make to Christ. Now, I recognize that some people, as with a lot of these that we're going to look at over the next few weeks, uh, use the term, but they don't mean to infuse it with all of this front-loading of, of a promise or a pledge to do something. They use it because it's been kind of become a colloquial phrase. It's just something we talk about. Um, in other words, some people will say in sharing their testimony, I committed my life to Christ when I was six years old. And they don't mean necessarily that at age six they made a firm promise or commitment to the Lord to do something for Him, and in exchange He agreed, well, if you'll keep your commitment, I'll get you into heaven. They don't mean that. They're just saying I committed my life to Christ as sort of another way of saying I placed my faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. So I always like to distinguish between people who are using terminology because they really believe in that approach to the gospel, that it really is a bilateral commitment of some kind, versus those who are just sort of sloppy or careless in the way they communicate it. Um, I have more patience for those who are just using terminology because that's what they've always heard, but they once they stop to think about it, they go, you know what, you're right. The Bible certainly never uses the word commitment in the context of heaven, hell, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, salvation, any of those. No, nothing, nowhere. So it's clearly not a biblical term. And uh, why not use the biblical term? The biblical term is clear enough. 160 times in the New Testament alone, the Bible conditions eternal life upon faith. What's wrong with faith? Why do we need a different term, especially one that is confusing? So the gospel is not about what we do for Christ. It's about what He has already done for us. And no amount of commitment on our part, no matter how earnest and sincere and determined and strong, can ever overcome the penalty of sin. Uh, we need Christ's payment on our behalf. Jesus paid it all. We need that payment. We need, some, we need Christ's righteousness. And when we say that the gospel is a commitment that we make, essentially what we're saying is, well, Jesus paid some of it, but i got to bring something to the table too. If I'm not committed enough, eh, God's not going to give me heaven. But it's not about our commitment. Um, if we can earn heaven on the strength of our commitment, then why did Christ have to go to the cross in the first place? If it takes any amount of my committing myself to God or to the Lord... 
then theoretically, if I could just ramp that up enough, high enough, I could, I could overcome the entire debt, right? Uh, but it's not about our commitment. Uh, it's not about what we offer to God. We come empty-handed. Uh, we come completely unable to do anything commendable to a holy God. Frankly, to think that we can commit ourselves to God enough that he would say, come on into heaven and I'll forget your sins, is embarrassing. It's a, it's a, it's a laughable concept because it shows that that person really doesn't understand the depths of sin. And it's often been said that your understanding of grace is directly tied to your understanding of depravity. And until you first understand just how lost you are and what the steep penalty for sin is, you'll never really appreciate grace. Um, but for some reason, those who, who are inclined toward this notion of commitment and somehow think that they've got to pony up, they, they've got to have this volitional willingness to to do something for God in order for Him to then feel like we're worthy of salvation, uh, to them, grace is a threat. Um, they, they, they don't like the emphasis on grace, right? Uh, how many of you have heard the phrase cheap grace? Anybody heard that phrase? Well, that's a, it's a complete misnomer, but it's a label that was created to be uh, targeted toward people like myself and others who understand that salvation is absolutely free. I mean, absolutely free. And I always like to repeat that. Salvation is absolutely free. Because those of you right now that are a little bit uneasy hearing that, you need to work on your understanding of grace. <laughs> That's not a, an insult, or I'm not trying to be personally insulting. That's just a fact. Um, it is absolutely free. We pay zero, nothing. We can't pay anything. If we could pay something, Jesus didn't have to pay our sin debt. The Bible ends with the great invitation, whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. Now, free means free. Um, Romans 3.24, we are justified freely by his grace. So it is absolutely free. And, you know, the slightest... Um, you know, adding to it of anything, even if it's 99% free, but 1%, you know, us, obliterates it. Because free is a zero-sum game. I think I've used the illustration, I don't know if I was on a Sunday or Wednesday in here, of at one of our speaking engagement with not, engagements with Not By Works, we used to have a uh, sign at our product table that said of our DVDs, buy four, get one free. And someone came up to me one time at the table after I spoke and said, well, I'll take my free DVD. And I said, well, you know, I pointed to the sign and I said, well, you know, you, you got to buy four. And he said, well, then it's not free. And he was exactly right. And we changed the signage from then on. And we said, buy four, get five. <laughs> it's not free. Uh, free means free. And, uh, and so... That's, that's why we say the gospel is not a commitment. First of all, you know, every one of these starts with the Bible. What does the Bible say? 
And unless someone can point to chapter and verse that says we get to heaven because we make a commitment to God, you know, we, let's start there. Well, you're not going to find it. But conceptually and theologically, we know that's not true. Let's look at some passages. Obviously, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 comes to mind. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So if salvation was based upon a commitment, well, then I could boast that my commitment is stronger than yours. I'm going to heaven because I have a strong commitment. I'm not so sure about you. I don't know. Your commitment seems a little weaker than mine. You may not be going to heaven. See my point? Um, it, it, it creates this comparison mentality. Um, you know, if you were as committed to me, boy, you'd get to heaven too. Look at me. It's all about me. Uh, commitment is something we need to keep a New Year's resolution uh, or to stick with a diet or to finish a project or, or to be the best at whatever we're doing. But the gospel is not about us being the best we can be. It's about recognizing that we are filthy, dirty, rotten, unworthy sinners who can never be good enough. We need a Savior. Now, the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Now, that's the theme verse of, of Not By Works Ministries. You know, we've been around for 22 years, going on 22 years this year, and uh, our name came from this verse that we want to emphasize the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel message. And the verse I mentioned earlier is being justified freely by His grace. And whoever desires to let Him take the water of life, freely, freely. So the gospel is not a commitment. Any thoughts or questions on that? See where I'm going with that? Yeah, Jeff. How about the word decision? I used the word decision not too long ago. Do you think decision has any of those faults in it as well? As no, to avoid it? Okay. I don't. I don't. The question is, what about the word decision? Uh, I think that that word in certain context has become sort of formulaic. And so in those contexts, it depends what you mean by it. But the decision to trust in Christ is absolutely a decision. We have a free will. <laughs> We must choose to believe the gospel or we can choose to reject the gospel. If anybody ends up in hell, they have nobody to blame but themselves because God has done absolutely everything necessary to pay our debt. All we have to do is take it. How do we take it? We receive it by faith. John 1.12, to as many as received him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become the children of God. So uh, that, that requires a decision. I cannot believe the gospel for you and you cannot believe it for me. And we're not... It's not a passive thing. Now, um, as we go through this series, we're going to touch frequently on the, the Calvinist understanding of the gospel, which is wrong. But they think that you can't believe the gospel. You have no ability to do it. So they would not like the word decision because you don't get to decide. It's predetermined, right? Um, and, uh, you know, for, for them, faith is forced upon you. You either are going to be involuntarily forced to believe, or you're not. If you're elect, you, you couldn't not believe even if you wanted to. And if you're not elect, you couldn't believe if you want to. So faith to them is something that God does. It's not an individual choice. Uh, so they have completely overplayed God's sovereignty and made man's salvation completely without condition. 
But there is one condition for salvation that is mentioned 160 times in the New Testament. What is that condition? Faith. faith. Right. And faith is an active verb. It requires an object. Faith in what? So uh, nobody believes for me. I believe something. And that inherently is an intellectual decision. We're going to get to that in this, uh, these ten points. I'm going to show you how the erroneous idea that intellect and heart are two different concepts is not biblical. But, uh, they are the same thing. Faith is intellectual. Uh, Calvinists have a problem with that because then it implies you made the decision. And they don't like that. But you do make the decision. So I don't have a problem with the decision to trust Christ. But decision is a little bit ambiguous absent any context. And so a lot of people will use the term decision you know, in the context of commitment. Right? They'll say, oh, at age six, I decided to be committed. Right? Uh, I keep forgetting to bring these articles that I've referenced, I think, at least one other time. But I'll try to remember next week. But I wrote an article many years ago in a journal. And it was based on a true story. I changed all the names. But it was about a person who was a very dear friend of mine who was uh, influenced and really held captive to this erroneous notion of commitment. And because they felt like their initial relationship with God began with a commitment, every time they fell or struggled or had some moral failure, they felt like they must not have been committed enough. I must not have been a Christian, so I'm going to do it again. And, and I would have conversations with them, and, and they would say, uh, you know, I'm going to really be committed this time. This time I really mean business with the Lord. And they would, you know, walk another aisle, get baptized again, and for the first few months be on fire for Jesus, then fall prey to the same old temptations and fall uh, by the wayside and be broken and think, oh, I must not have been saved because look what I did. So that's the, the vicious cycle of those who think their relationship with Jesus is based on a commitment. Um, and even if you're not struggling with major moral failure, the way this individual was, all of us sin every day. I mean, and, and, and for, you know, for us to think that you know, our, our entrance into heaven is based upon a commitment begs the question, how committed do I have to be? You know, um, how much is enough? And, and by the way, a commitment-based gospel destroys assurance. You can never really be sure you're saved if you think your salvation is uh, contingent upon commitment. Because let's face it, our commitment wanes every day, doesn't it? So, um, you know, commitment is, is, is a real unfortunate term that has crept into the gospel presentations of a lot of people and a lot of churches and a lot of books and a lot of pastors and a lot of authors. Um, and it's, it's really a tool of the devil, whether people realize it or not, because he has convinced who knows how many people that their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life because they've made some commitment. And their own resolve pridefully makes them think, but boy, few people could possibly be as committed as I am, so surely I'm going to be going through the doors of heaven. Um, but there's no possibility for assurance under that um, approach uh, because uh, commitment is by its nature 
a subjective thing, right? Um, so the idea that the gospel requires some kind of commitment on our part really flows out of a failure to understand a fundamental principle in Scripture, and that is the distinction between salvation and discipleship. So in a, in a Calvinist scheme, or anyone who holds that our eternal destiny is based upon a commitment, they don't see a distinction between discipleship and salvation. They're one and the same. If you're not a disciple, you're going to hell. You're not a Christian. The Bible, of course, paints a different picture. A disciple just means follower of Christ, may or may not also be a believer in Christ, but not necessarily. Judas was a disciple, for example, and we know from John's Gospel he was not a believer and he's in hell today. Um, discipleship has to do with believers. Salvation has to do with unbelievers. And so I want to take the time to kind of walk through this concept, and we've talked about it before in different concepts, but um, the notion of positional righteousness, which the Bible refers to as justification, and practical righteousness, which the Bible refers to as sanctification. So positional righteousness or justification rescues us from sin's penalty. What's the penalty of sin? An eternity in a Christless place of torment called hell. Uh, and justification rescues us from that penalty. Sanctification rescues us from the power of sin. As we day by day walk by faith, walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh, saturate ourselves with the Word of God, surround ourselves with other believers, feed the new nature in Christ, then our practice will over time begin to emulate our position. But it's not automatic. That's why there is a distinction between the two in the Bible. Positionally, the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ, at that one-time moment in time, we are positionally placed in Christ. That's our new position. And nothing can change that. Nothing. Uh, as a new believer in Christ, we are in Christ. We are part of the family of God. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Um, and then as, that, as we have the new nature and the Holy Spirit takes up residence and does battle with the old nature, we're going to talk about this a little bit Sunday in Hebrews 12, then we begin to live out our new position. A child of the king should act like a child of the king, not a child of a pauper. And as a believer, we're a child of the king. So sanctification, unlike justification, occurs continuously at various points in time as we walk in the Spirit. And both of them occur by faith. We are saved by faith, and we live by faith. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith, not by sight. And so the method of justification is always the same as the method of sanctification, and that is faith. But the initial faith that we have in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for our sins, in that instance, when faith meets the gospel, we are born again, adopted into the family of God, names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, all of those things, and we become a child of God. But then, having been saved by faith, we can either choose to live our lives in the flesh, 
based on worldly pleasures, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, uh, based on the things we can see and feel and touch. Or we can reckon ourselves dead to sin, uh, Hebrew, or Romans 6, and walk as citizens of heaven, looking beyond what we can see and feel and touch, and walking by faith. So that when we suffer hardship or persecution, we don't get derailed. We say, God, I don't know why this is happening, but I trust you. Uh, when we see something enticing, we say, God, that sure looks, that apple sure looks red and shiny and juicy, and I'd sure love to take a bite, but I know your word says not to, so I'm going to walk by faith and trust you and not do it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, faith is the, is the confidence or assurance in something, and it must have an object. Yeah. Uh, what is the, what are you believing in the living by faith? In the sanctification process? Yeah. So you're trusting God. Um, so, so Job is the perfect example. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So you see it in the Psalms all the time. You see it, again, in the epistles. Walking by faith, not by sight. So it's a matter of trusting God, not ourselves. And ultimately, the Bible says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So all sin, and let's face it, that's what we're talking about in the right-hand column there, right? We're talking about overcoming the power of sin. Not being enticed to do what is wrong. And instead living out our position in Christ to do what is right. Right? Yeah. Emulating the new man. Being Christ-like. That's what Christian means, by the way, Christ-like. So when we talk about the right column, we're talking about not sinning. So if you think about it, every decision to sin, and we could fill in whatever detail we want, comes down to a moment of who are you going to trust? Again, it's, it's that proverbial angel on the shoulder. So you've got the Spirit of God over here saying, trust God's Word, live by Him. Um, you know, if, I regard, if I had the Word of my heart, I will not sin against thee, um, and so forth. Over here, you've got the proverbial devil on the shoulder saying, oh, don't listen to him. It's the same MO that Satan used back in the garden in Genesis 3. Um, saying, you know, don't listen to God, do this, it's going to be great, it'll be fun, it'll feel good, you'll like it. So at every decision, it comes down to who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust God and His Word? Or are you going to trust your own instincts and your natural man, the, the, the fleshly man within you? So the left column is salvation, and the right column is discipleship. And these are not the same thing. But those uh, who believe that you know commitment is what saves you they'll look at the right column and they'll see a person struggling in certain areas and they'll say boy their commitment is waning and and they'd be right by the way because discipleship is all about commitment discipleship is about trusting god and sticking with your commitment and following keeping your word and those kinds of things but they'll conclude from the fact that a person's not very committed oh they must not be saved because to them, they're one and the same. There is no distinction. Um, and, and they're wrong. Um, so the goal here is that our practice in life, our behavior, should reflect our position in Christ. That's the goal. That's what the Christian life is all about. As long as we're topside this earth, awaiting the Lord's return, or awaiting our moment to go the way of all flesh, whichever comes first, uh, our task is to do our best to walk by faith and make sure that our practice reflects our position. 
But the fact is they don't always, it doesn't always do that. And we've got to get past this mistaken blurring of the lines of distinction between justification and sanctification. They're not the same thing. Now, you know, to complicate matters further, in the biblical record, theologically speaking, sometimes that word sanctification is used in three different ways. It can be used as a synonym for justification, and the context is always clear. Sometimes it's used just as we're using it here. In fact, the vast majority of the time, this is the way it's used in the sense of our practical day-by-day walking in Christ, discipleship. And then sometimes, in a few cases, the word sanctification is used to refer to glorification, our ultimate departing this earth, putting on the new man, and, or putting on the uh, redeemed body and going to, to, to eternity. Um, so, but but what, we, what is often called progressive sanctification, uh, to distinguish it from the other two kinds of sanctification, and what we're talking about here is not the same thing as justification. Justification rescues us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification rescues us from the power of sin. But we, we accomplish both by faith. It's just a different object. Specifically, the object of faith in order to bring salva- eternal salvation is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again. Okay? The, the faith that brings maturity and, and Christ-likeness and, and, and sanctification is a general trust in God and His Word and all of His promises and guidelines and so forth. Right? So, uh, salvation or the gospel is not a commitment. Um, and to just kind of reiterate what I said earlier, I want to show you the distinction between the three types of disciples in Scriptures. There were the curious disciples who were unsaved, and an example would be Judas and many of the crowds. We read this in John. I think it's John chapter 6, where... A lot of the crowds were following Christ with great eagerness because he was the hottest ticket in town. He was performing miracles. He was amazing people. He was putting the scribes and Pharisees in their place, and it was quite a spectacle. And they were called in the Bible disciples, but they were clearly unsaved. And in several cases, we know that from the biblical record. In the case of Judas and in the case of the crowds, it tells us they never believed. But then you've got the convinced disciples. These were believers. Um, they absolutely believed in Christ. They believed the gospel, and they were following him, but they were not always committed. Their commitment waned. Peter is a classic example, at least in the moment of his denials, of a convinced but not committed disciple. Do you see how that works? He clearly was a believer, but nobody except the most mentally uh, handicapped you know person would suggest that when peter denied christ not once not twice but three times and cursed him no one would say look how committed he was to jesus that's the that's the quintessential picture of not being committed to jesus Um, so you can be convinced that is you're saved you're going to heaven but you're not committed the goal is to be committed that's the goal to be saved and committed and that's any believer who's faithfully following christ so don't let anyone tell you that disciple is automatically a Christian. Our goal is twofold as the church on planet earth until the Lord comes back in the present church age. 
It is to evangelize, share the good news, and see people come to faith in Christ. But it's then to also train them up to be mature followers of Christ, to be committed followers of Christ. So that concept of commitment relates to sanctification, not justification. Make sense? Any other comments or thoughts? It's about all I've got on the first point. Before we move on to the second, I want to see what else, any other comments? Well, even justified is used of, in terms of justified before men in James, right? Yep, yep. And then yep. in that sense, and in Romans sanctification four. in the sense of good works. Yeah, so there are, he's pointing out that there are a couple of places, Romans 4 and James 2, which James is actually referencing uh, back to, James, to Romans, um, where even the term justified cannot have a forensic positional sense of eternal salvation. You can justify yourselves before men, but that may or may not mean you're a Christian. But theologically... These terms, especially in Romans, which is kind of the magnum opus of the doctrine of salvation, um, the term justified means declared righteous. Um, it's, it means that when we place our faith in Christ, we are Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. It's an accounting term. All of our debt is wiped out, and we are now righteous. You cannot get righteous enough on your own. Okay? Because our blood is tainted. We, no matter how many good works we do, as Isaiah said, it's like filthy rags to a holy God. So we need perfect righteousness. A Roman, or a Matthew 5.48 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that if you want to get into the kingdom, you've got to be perfect just as God is perfect. So entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not based upon a curve and it's not like an SAT score. You might be in the 99th percentile based on your morality. Uh, there are a lot of very moral people in the world who will die and go to hell because even though they were 98% righteous or 99% righteous, they weren't perfect. So don't brag about being good and say, well, you know, I see this all the time at funerals that I've done, you know, or just in conversations with people. You know, they'll say, you know, because funerals tend to cause people to think about mortality and the reality that life is, is not about here and now, it's about then and there. Funerals bring us all face to face with the reality of death, right? And so people say interesting things as, they're find, as they find themselves contemplating the spiritual aspect of life. And so people will say something like, well, you know, I... Boy, I, I, I may not be perfect, but I, I, I'm, I'm not as bad as old so-and-so, or I've never been that bad, or I'm better than most, or, you know, like, it's like they think, and people honestly think this, I believe. They think that, and, and forgive the analogy, I don't mean to offend by this, but they think that the standard of heaven is, say, Mother Teresa, and the standard of hell is, say, Hitler. And as long as I'm not that bad... You know, as long as on the continuum I'm closer to Mother Teresa than Hitler, I'm probably going to get in. That's the way people think. But the problem is, the standard is Jesus, and He's perfect. And so we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. And no amount of, you know, adding good works, you know, to our efforts 
can undo the fact that it's tainted, right? And so we need perfect blood. That's the reason, by the way, Jesus had to be born of a virgin because Romans 5.12 tells us sin is passed down, uh, that is genealogically through the blood. Uh, sin is in the blood. That's why it requires a blood sacrifice to be saved. And Jesus, as the perfect God-man, was not conceived through human means, through Joseph. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so he was fully God, but also fully man. But his DNA was not tainted with sin-stricken blood. And so he, being the sinless Savior, could, could take the sins of the whole world upon himself at the cross, right, and pay the sin debt of the world. 1 John 2, 2 says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but the whole world. Propitiation means the satisfied, satisfying payment or the satisfaction of God's wrath. So the payment's been paid. And, and I couldn't pay it for you. I couldn't even pay it for myself. I mean, ultimately, if I don't, hadn't trusted Christ, that payment would have to be paid by me. But it's been paid. The question is, am I going to receive it? And Christ's death on the cross didn't guarantee that every human being would go to heaven. But it did guarantee that every human being could go to heaven. All they have to do is receive the free gift. And how do they receive it? By faith. More than 160 times, the method of receiving the gift is labeled as faith. And I know that's a hard concept because we're trying to explain the spiritual in terms of the physical. And we understand the physical aspect of an exchange of a gift. If you have a physical birthday gift and you want someone else to have it, you simply hand it to them and they use their hands to take that gift and it now belongs to them. Spiritually speaking, the gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life is received not with our hands, which are physical, but by faith. And not just faith in anything, because people believe a lot of things in life. They have faith in a lot of things. They have faith in Muhammad. They have faith in Allah. Faith in Buddha. But it's faith in the right object, and that object is Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God who died and rose again for our sins. So when faith meets the right object, it's as if our spiritual hands have reached out and grabbed forgiveness and eternal life. And in that moment, we are positionally in Christ. And we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, given to us, so that when we stand before heaven someday and, and are looking for you know, being evaluated for our qualifications, we don't have to hand God a list of our good deeds and bad deeds and hope that the good ones outweigh the bad ones. We don't have to hope for a 2300 on the SAT or 1500 however they grade it now I don't even remember we don't have to hope that we're in the 99th percentile we can just say I'm with him he's my passport he's the blood of, it's on his blood that covers me and so people confuse the eternal spiritual reality of things with the actual physical reality and sadly the, the reality is our practice in life, as I said, does not always reflect who we are in Christ. By the way, if it did, we would all be perfect, right? I mean, if living out the new man and, and, make, and, 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 and the assurance that our new position in Christ with the blood of Christ covering us and his righteousness being given to us meant that we would always act like him, we'd all be perfect. But both biblically and most certainly self-evidently, we're not all perfect, okay? So 
That must mean something. I mean, at the very least, to me, it means Calvinism is dead wrong because you, you, can't, you can't look at people who are not living out a Christ-like life and say, ah, they must not be a Christian because that very statement assumes that all Christians will act Christ-like. And they don't. They should, but they don't. Every Christian should live out the new man, should walk by faith, not by sight, should walk in the spirit and not after the flesh, should put on the new man and not the old man, and all these dichotomies that the Bible talks about. But we don't. We don't do that. And um, when we don't, it doesn't necessarily mean we're not saved. It just means we're not acting like a saved person should act. We're not behaving like a saved person should behave. Any other thoughts or questions then about commitment? Uh, yeah. So the chart you just had up a minute ago, there are people who would say that the parable of the sower mm -hmm. is a representation of that, those types of disciples. Yeah, so the parable of sowers is an interesting one because those who, who are inclined to believe in a commitment-based gospel, that we get to heaven based on what we do for God, our commitment, would see all but one of the four soils as saved. I mean, as, as unsaved, excuse me. Those of us who understand salvation by grace and the gift and its free gift would say that three of the four are saved. Okay. So now the other thing about the parable of the soils is that even that uh, characterization or explanation of the parable that I just gave is really an application, not an interpretation, because the parables of the kingdom, which is, that's one of them in Matthew 13, are all about Israel. They're given before the church was even born, given to the nation of Israel, talking about the future kingdom. In fact, that's why they're called parables about the kingdom. That's the way Jesus describes them. And so he's talking about Israel there, but, you know, Israel believing the gospel of the kingdom means they're going to be not only in the kingdom, but in the eternal heavens and new earth and heavens and earth too. So we can, from a timeless truth perspective, we can apply the truths that are spoken of about Israel there to individual believers of the church age. But I just wanted to clarify, it's not actually talking about Christian and church age believers. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a good example of how, you know, you can believe the message and produce varying levels of fruit. Right? Not every believer is going to produce the same amount of fruit. A better direct teaching about that concept is in Luke chapter 19. Let's look at that for a second, even though I don't have it on the screen. Um, we talked about this, I believe, in our Sunday morning Bible study because it's an eschatological passage and we're going through what lies ahead in the end times prophecy in, at Sundays at 9 o'clock. But it's also a good, helpful passage about discipleship. So, in Luke 19, uh, beginning in verse 11, Luke says, Now as they heard these things, he, Jesus, spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem, and because they, the disciples, thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So this is taking place the day before the triumphal entry. It's Passion Week, Passover Week. In Jerusalem, he's outside Jerusalem, just on the outskirts, and he's ready to go in for all of those events that take place that final week. 
And Luke tells us, again, Luke writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so we actually get a fascinating glimpse at what's in the mind of these disciples. And they thought the kingdom was going to happen right then. It was finally coming, the long-awaited kingdom promised by the prophets of old. But Jesus wanted to uh, you know, divest them of this mistaken notion, so he tells them this parable. Well, what's the parable? A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom in return. Clearly the nobleman is Christ. He's about to leave to go receive the kingdom, which is where he is now at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, waiting to receive the kingdom and then come back and inaugurate it. Um, and so the nobleman is Jesus. Uh, the nobleman, verse 13, calls ten of his servants and delivered to them ten minas. And he said to them, do business till I come. Now, in, in this parable, each one of these ten servants gets the same thing, one mina. And the idea here is a, you have a, a life of service. You have a, a job or a task to do while I'm gone. So this is clearly an allusion to the church age, though the church age hadn't happened yet. It didn't happen until you know, 50 days after the resurrection. But this is the, the nuance here. Jesus is trying to kind of let his disciples know, and not so fast. I know you want the kingdom to come, but some other things have to happen first. Um, so he says, you know, take this mina, be a good steward of it, do something with it until I return. Verse 14, but his citizens, remember who's the king, the nobleman? Jesus. His citizens hated him and did not want him to reign over them. Well, who is that? Israel, the nation of Israel, clearly, which is it's all coming to a head within a matter of days when they're going to crown him with thorns and nail him to a cross instead of welcoming him as their long-awaited king of kings, the son of David. So we see three characters in this parable so far. The nobleman, Jesus, his servants, what would become the church, and the king. I mean, and uh, the Jews, the Israelites. And verse 15, so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, that's where Jesus is now. Remember in the book of Hebrews, he, he refers to, um, you know, we're not writing about the, you know, we're writing about that kingdom which is to come. You know, he's not put everything under subjection to the king yet. He's going to someday. We're not there yet. Okay. This is Satan's kingdom right now. This is the Satan's domain, Satan's world. He's the prince of the power of the air and the god of this age. And that's why 1 John 5 tells us the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. So just as Jesus describes in this parable, we're now actually experiencing and living out the timetable. Um, but someday the king's going to come back. And in the parable, he did come back. And he commanded his servants to whom he had given the money to be called that he might know how much Every man had gained by his trading. In other words, what did you do while I was gone? And what we're going to see, getting back to kind of Anne's, what she was referring to with the parable of the soils, which is completely different context, um, is that the, these servants each performed differently. right? So the first one took his one mina and, and turned it into ten minas. And Jesus said, well, good, well done, good and faithful servant. And so what happened to him? Well, he was rewarded by being put in charge of ten cities in the kingdom. He was given a greater stewardship because he had proven himself to be a faithful steward. Um, the next one comes and he says, I've earned five minas. Once, a, once again, Jesus didn't give him the you know, profound uh, 
at, at you know accolade of good, well done, good and faithful servant. But he did say you're going to be put in charge of five cities. So he he proved himself to be a faithful servant, not quite as faithful as the previous one, but still faithful nonetheless. And he put him in charge of five cities. And then of course you remember the story. The final servant comes. He did nothing with his mina, his life of service, and. Um, so he's not given anything to be in charge of. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 3 and the believer at the judgment seat of Christ who when his works, his life is evaluated, which is when this is going to happen, by the way. Jesus doesn't say so in this passage, but by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we know this accounting, this reckoning of how faithful were you and what do you get as a reward occurs at the beam of judgment. And 1 Corinthians 3 is talking about that. But we see Paul describe in that passage a believer who who everything in his life, his Christian life, is burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. and so, But he still gets into heaven. He's yet saved so as through fire. And the same thing here. Even though Jesus has some harsh words to say for this servant, he doesn't prohibit him from getting into the kingdom. He still gets into the kingdom. He's just not given a stewardship when he gets there. right? And why should he be? He didn't prove himself faithful. But notice in verse 27, bring here those enemies of mine. That was... The unbelieving Jews who never believed the gospel and didn't want him to reign over them. And he said, slay them before me. So they're, they're cast into hell. So this is the notion here of discipleship. So it it's really comes down to the gift and the reward. Eternal salvation is a gift. Discipleship, as we faithfully follow Christ, results in rewards. And we see that throughout the New Testament. In fact, I've done a, a study on rewards. It's a whole chapter in my book, What Lies Ahead. But uh, every New Testament writer addresses the subject of eternal rewards. So we see, for example, in Colossians chapter 3, um, where he says, whatever you do, Verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. How heartily are you serving the Lord? See, when people teach a commitment-based gospel, they're using that type of terminology. You know, you got to heartily follow Christ. you got to heartily serve the, serve the Lord. And if you do it heartily enough, hopefully you'll get into heaven. But those kinds of descriptions are never used of how we get eternal life. In fact, overwhelmingly, it's always talked about as a gift. It's a free gift at that, which if a gift's not free, it's not a gift anyway. It's kind of redundant, isn't it? But these passages that do talk about commitment are talked about in the context of reward. And so the only reason I took the time to go through Luke 19 there is that um, it came to mind when Ann asked her question, but it's a classic example that shows, yes, there, there are consequences for believers who choose to cater to the flesh. You better believe there are consequences. Um, you know, we, we've done DVDs on the awfulness of sin, and um, I have a chapter in my book, Freely by His Grace, on Christians and sin. Don't ever think that those who understand the pure grace gospel are somehow soft on sin. No, there are very serious consequences for a sinning believer. Things like loss of rewards, as we just saw. Things like loss of blessing in this life. 
things like the natural consequences of sin. I mean, sin's an equal opportunity killer. It destroys lives. And so a believer on this earthly life who chooses to cater to the flesh is, is going to suffer the consequences. They're going to have the diseases and the health problems and could even face swift physical death. 1 John 5.16 says there's sin that leads to death. Uh, so a believer who sins and dies goes to heaven. An unbeliever who sins and dies goes to hell. Uh, but sin is an equal opportunity killer. James says sin, when it's full grown, brings forth what? Death. Uh, Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He loves to kill unbelievers because it means they'll have no opportunity then to ever trust in Christ and receive the free gift. But he loves to kill believers too because it takes them out of commission. right? And uh, they're no longer available in the army of God to, to do the job that the church is called to do in this present age. But yeah, there are definitely serious consequences of sin. But somehow in our minds, we have reduced it all because of bad teaching for 2,000 years to a heaven and hell concept, construct. So every time we see someone living in, in, in sinfulness or in an abject sinful behavior, we somehow fall into the you know, false dilemma of either heaven or hell and we say, well, that certainly doesn't look like heavenly behavior. It must be hellbound behavior. And we don't forget there's an entire muddy middle there. And, and, you know, believers can look and act very much like unbelievers when they're not walking by faith, reckoning themselves dead to sin, and reflecting their position in Christ. In fact, as you've heard me say, there is no sin that an unbeliever can commit, that a believer cannot also commit if he's catering to the flesh. Um, doesn't mean it's right, certainly. Doesn't mean it's good. Doesn't mean it's recommended. There are serious problems with sin. Um, but sin, as it relates to eternal life, that issue is settled the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ. When we believe the gospel at that moment, we're in Christ. And nothing on the human timeline that happens after that, nothing can go back and undo spiritually what God did at that moment in changing our spiritual DNA, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, you know, being adopted into the family of God. What kind of God would it be if, if he says, whoever believes in me has everlasting life, and then sometime after that, you do something that in some warped theology qualifies as bad enough to undo what supposedly you did and you and so you end up in hell that would make god a liar that make god's promise disingenuous i mean god either meant what he said or he didn't jesus said in john 10 28 i give you eternal life and you shall never perish and and by the way in the greek of john 10 28 there's a unusual double negative there if we translated it verbatim word for word it would be you shall know never perish and i have a friend who's written an outstanding book on eternal security in which he titles it never perish forever because that's kind of the nuance never perish forever well never already implies forever but let's just make sure you get the point and jesus is saying once i give you eternal life you can never end up in hell when do you get eternal life when you die? No. When you believe the gospel. 
So if Jesus means what he says, and I take him at his word, then the moment you, in that moment in time when we believe the gospel, at that moment we shall know never perish, shall never perish forever. Even if, people always say, well, what about this? Or what about the believer who does that? And they come up with all these horrific examples. And I'm just saying, look, I cannot, you know, all I can do is explain to you what Jesus said. I cannot understand it for you. You're either going to believe it or not. And when Jesus said, you'll never perish, you'll never perish. Does that mean that someone might fall into some horrific, sinful behavior, drugs, alcohol, sexual problems, and still end up in heaven? Yeah. But when you think about it, is that, is that any more shocking than the fact that you and I, who still sin every day, maybe not with the biggies that are visible and the ones that we've earmarked as, uh-oh, red lights, this is a problem, but you, know, you still have covetousness, you still have jealousy, you still have pride, you still have anger, you still have lustful thoughts. And somehow we would never say that that disqualifies our faith. And I'm okay thinking of myself going to heaven someday, but I see someone who is a believer and yet has, through their own poor choices, ended up living a pretty ugly life, and I say, well, they must not be a believer. Well, that's, not, that's not what grace is, and that's not what grace means. So any other uh, thoughts then about this? Since we're out of time, I'll go ahead and wrap up with, verse 1, I mean with the first point, and then we'll get back next week and start with the second point. But got a couple minutes here for questions. Yes, Sally. Um, so then, would it be safe to say that I have received the Lord uh, by faith through Jesus Christ by the grace of God? I would say you've received salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by, by grace. Yeah. Or through, by, through, and pre, our prepositions in English are kind of like Greek, can be used different ways. But yeah, it's faith, the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. That's who we must believe in. And the very fact that God allows us to be saved simply by faith is an act of grace. It's an act of grace. Um, so I'm, I'm speaking on the 18th at a conference in Nebraska and I've got three messages and and they wanted me to do it all about grace so I've put together three messages I'm calling grace in the first place grace for the daily race and grace when we see him face to face and it's all about grace we don't deserve to be saved in the first place we don't deserve to have a savior right there with us wherever we go helping us walk through and navigate the deep dark valleys of life and we don't deserve to see him face to face any in heaven someday all of that is an amazing part of grace so grace really is a summary term that describes all of the work of god in salvation past present and future we're saved by grace we live by grace we look forward to being glorified by grace um, but yeah I, I i like the way you said that that's good anything else Okay, awesome. Well, thank you guys very much. We'll wrap up for tonight, and we'll see you either Sunday or next Wednesday. Or both. Or both, that's right. <laughs> and thanks for those who joined us uh, online, and we'll have this video posted here shortly, and look forward to seeing you next Wednesday and Sunday. We'll live stream as well.